Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to Radio Read Along, everyone. Adam Andrews with you, along with the Center for Lit crew. And it is time to discuss Robert Louis Stevenson's classic, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You guys ready to do it? Born ready, bro. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we do, though, anything going on in the Center for Lit world uh, and in your lives personally that you want to get off your chest so that we can focus on the task at hand? <laughs> <laughs> it would take too long. <laughs> it's a big old long laundry list today. <laughs> well, spring has sprung around mm. the Andrews house. And I have to report, I don't know if I reported this in any other context, but all of the winter snow melted in like a week. And so it's now, just gone. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. You guys didn't know that? Mm-mm. Yeah. The snow is completely no, yeah. gone. It was two and a half feet deep a couple of weeks ago. And in the space of probably four or five days. Yeah. It all melted. Yeah, that's hmm. right. So now we have a bit of a mud problem, as you might expect. It's not too well, it bad this year, though. Raining. Yeah, it's that's raining right. like crazy out here. Um, Emily and I are a little ill in our souls just because um, because the rain is not as happy as the sun. We've been reminding each other that everything is okay for a couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> that this is temporary. I think this we is temporary. we actually sent out an email uh, today or yesterday to our Pelican Society uh, members, and Emily wrote it. And the opening line said something about rain being so depressing I can hardly stand it. We were, we were at church. Uh, we were at church in the and the, oh, the you know how pastors lead in with some sort of a joke to just just to get the congregation all you know ready to chuckle with them and stuff like that. And the opening joke was, "I saw a rainbow. All is not lost." <laughs> That's awesome. God has hung his rainbow in the heavens, and so we know he will not curse us with this never-ending rain forever. It will not drown and wipe all life off the face of the earth. That's awesome. Well, good to see you guys. Good to be with you. Let's talk. Let's talk about Robert Louis Stevenson. We're uh, to the end of The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. What do we think about this book? Why did we choose it for Radio Read Along? What do we have to say about it? Ian, I think you were fighting for the uh, the prerogative of going first today. So why don't you dive in? <laughs> I'm always fighting for something, I, I think. Um, I love this book. I think this book is absolutely wonderful. I uh the thing that surprises me about it, the more times I read it and the more times I discuss it, is that um, Stevenson manages to bring up a whole host of moral questions without ever once slipping and sliding into moralism. And I think the ways that he pulls that off in Jekyll and Hyde are maybe unique among the rest of his corpus and absolutely stunning. There's my shot across the bow. Whenever we teach this in our junior high class, our students never fail to misunderstand Mm. some of the basic plot elements, even um, not because of miscomprehension, but because of some moral pre assumptions. Really? Get what, give me an example of that, Emily. Well, one of the common misconceptions about this story is that Hyde is the completely evil portion of this character. And Jekyll is the completely good portion of this character and he needs to choose to be Jekyll the good side of himself uh, and eschew Hyde wow really pretty consistent so would you say that's a common a common understanding of the of the thrust of the plot that is a constant seventh and eighth grade yeah I would say universal as as far as we are experienced so we're we're, so we're limited experience yeah 
So we're presented with this dichotomy in the story, obviously, hide the, the demoniac embodiment of Jekyll's darker urges, and then Jekyll, the upstanding doctor of reputation. And mm-hmm. the, the young reader sees that binary relationship and assumes hide bad Jekyll good. Well, yeah, not only that, though, they they see that relationship and they they automatically identify Jekyll's motivation in a way that I think Stevenson is at pains to both leave open as an option for us so as to catch us in our uh, in our preconceptions, I think, and then is also very, very careful to point out that we're wrong about by the end of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most of my students and Emily can back me up on this. Most of my students would say Jekyll's main motivation in his struggle here. And this is even contrary to some um, explanations by Jekyll himself. In writing, <laughs> right. This is how, this is how willing the students are to, um, to follow their preconceptions that Jekyll's main motivation in pursuing this experiment is to make sure he has room to go do all the dirt he wants to do without getting caught. And that in that, um, in that Dr. Hyde, or Dr. Hyde, I always do this whenever we talk about this book, um, that Hyde is is a get-out-of-jail-free card for Jekyll to pursue his evil urges. And so um, it, that's the way this, the students look at the story. And by the end, it's Jekyll getting his just desserts for, for trying to circumvent nature and all of its ways of punishing evildoers. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and so that's the... That's where the conversation wants to go with a class full of seventh and eighth graders. Okay, I'm just going to play the devil's advocate. Um, Please do. That sounds like what the story's all about to me. Mm. Doesn't Jekyll actually say at some point, uh, "I found a great freedom in indulging in the uh, the darker impulses of my nature in the person of Hyde," and he and he is a, a get out of jail free card. And and doesn't Je- and doesn't the the terrible end that Jekyll comes to bear out the students? Uh, moral judgment that that's what you get for indulging the, the hide in your nature. I mean, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, because I, frankly, because I give Stevenson a little bit more credit than that. <laughs> I give him just a little more credit than that, but there, there are a couple of scenes that are worth zooming in on, but where we always start to sort of turn our students' minds on this is by asking them what sort of a person is, uh, Jekyll, Henry Jekyll what kind of a person is Dr. Jekyll. Yeah. Henry Jekyll. What is his, what is his predisposition towards his friends, for example? What kind of a life is it that he really wants to lead? And um, over the course of the whole story, my students are forced to admit that he is the consummate bon viveur. He loves his friends. He loves social engagements. His house is organized specifically for hosting big gay parties. Mm-hmm. And whenever he comes off a bender with Hyde, he immediately reopens the the doors of his life, as it were, to all of his friends and acquaintances, and becomes the glowing center of this um, of this social social world. Yeah, the social world that he's put together, and that seems to be really, really high on his priority list. So high, in fact, that I think if we look backwards at the start of the experiment through that lens, through the through the idea that Jekyll is first and foremost in his own mind someone who loves to love his friends and who, in particular, wants to be loved by his friends. And wants to be seen by his friends. Um, we see him separating the good and evil in his own heart so that he can exist without being troubled by the evil, so that he doesn't actually have to be at any point the object of any kind of, um, of ill will from his friends in his community. He seems to be the kind of guy that's tormented by the idea that he might one day be evil in public. 
and what that will do to his reputation. Interesting. The stated goal of the experiment is not to create Hyde. Rather, it was to create both a completely quote-unquote evil being and a good one. The hope was that he would purely separate the two elements of nature. In other words, purify himself. Well, yeah. A lot of students don't realize that his experiment is unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. They think it's successful, that he succeeds in creating this get-out-of-jail-free card. But in fact... It is, like Emily's saying, it's an, it's an unsuccessful experiment because human nature is what it is. But and he but, may succeed in distilling some of the evil in his own soul out into a purely evil being, but the good being, quote-unquote, that remains is still tormented by evil. Yeah, so it's he interesting. He in purifying he, his own heart. He does say that he wants to separate the natures because he sees a duality in man. And mm-hmm. he says, I saw that of the two natures that contended in the field of my consciousness, even if I could rightly be said to be either, it was only because I was radically both. And from an mm-hmm. early date, even before the course of my scientific discoveries had begun to suggest the most naked possibility of such a miracle, I had learned to dwell with pleasure as a beloved daydream on the thought of the separation of these elements. And so what you're saying is that the reason he dwells with such pleasure on the thought of separation is the thought that his good nature would be untroubled by the threat of his evil nature. Well, that's what he says. He says, if each, I told myself, could but be housed in separate identities, life would be relieved of all that was unbearable. The unjust delivered from the aspirations might go his way and remorse of his more upright twin. And the just could walk steadfastly and securely on his upward path, doing the good things in which he found his pleasure and no longer exposed to disgrace and penitence by the hands of this extraneous evil. Wow. Right. The text the bears it out. In an important theological context, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. And this is why I have a lot of faith in Stevenson to be saying the things I think he's saying, because this is obviously the whole story is a meditation on, on St. Paul. Why do I continually do that which I do not want to do, mm-hmm. right? It, yes. It's the tension of the human spirit between um, utter depravity and then also the image of God and and the will to bless and be blessed. And so Jekyll's solution is, well, then why don't we just play God? Mm-hmm. Why don't we, the scientists, figure out a way to fix the mistake God made in 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 creating a dual being? and create of it two separate ones instead mm-hmm. so that both of them can go be themselves and quit messing with each other. And uh, I think from Stevens's perspective, that is the ultimate arrogance and the ultimate sin is to thumb your nose at God and say, um, there is no hope in the way you've set things up to run. Mm. And so I am going to, rather than availing myself, and this is the beautiful part of the story, I think, rather than availing myself of the necessary um, suckers that you have put in place for those of us who are afflicted, for those of us that are walking around down here in the world under the sun, I'm going to try and create my own. And it, what it, the effect of all of it is, and this is sort of the next brick in the wall of the argument, the effect of his experiment is to, and this happens in the narrative, the flow of the narrative as well, remove him from his community. The effect is to for long chunks of time. Remove Jekyll from his community. Yeah, to remove Dr. Jekyll from his community. Not just because he's not physically present as Jekyll, but is instead Hyde, but also every time he comes back, it gets harder and harder. Mm-hmm. And he's more and more worried instead of less and less worried well, that the Hyde inside of him is going to poke out and mess with his relationships. Mm-hmm. And so there's less and less room for the kind of community that maybe Stevenson is suggesting is the proper answer to the problems he's facing. Also, you can see him thinking on the fact that man doesn't really know 
the darker side of his nature, um, the pure darkness of that side of his nature. He, he doesn't bank on the fact that Hyde would be so strong, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I see this as a meditation on the blessing that the two natures are bound together so that mm-hmm. the one keeps the other in check and that that struggle that he says is the curse of mankind that is these incongruous faggots are bound together, right? Is actually a good, not mm-hmm. an evil. It's his, it's in a sense, um, the beginning of his salvation. Hmm. Fascinating. So characterize then the, the misreading that was the occasion for this this departure, this conversation, characterize it in contrast to the to a correct reading. What labels would you put on those two, Ian and Emily? Either one of you. Uh, okay, here we go. It, it's to take on Dr. Jekyll's assumptions as truth. Mm. A misreading starts there. It, it assumes that it truly would be better if you could separate the two natures and kill the evil one, which is what Jekyll eventually is trying to do mm-hmm. he, he uh, yes he wants to indulge in this evil but also in the passage that mom was reading he wants his uh, happier nature to be free to be good um, and thinks that if the evil one wasn't there he could just be this perfect paragon of virtue and so when the reader comes in and, and assumes that as well that i could i could be this paragon of virtue if i could just separate out this evil nature and, and kill it, mm-hmm. um, that's when we start to get our misreading. Yeah, think of it as sort of a um, uh, the perspective that uh, whatever's going on because of evil in the human heart, it's plan B in an, in an eternal universal sense, right? Um, the coexistence of good and evil in the human soul is plan B. But plan A, which would be better, is for there to be ultimately good creatures. Well, and I think considering things from the, the perspective that we're given in the first place, which is Utterson's perspective mm-hmm. yeah. as the narrator, he's described, I pulled up this description that we get of him at the very beginning, because I think it's really telling. Utterson is described as being kind of cold and, and crabby and a little grumpy, but he's, quote, eminently human in action. He has a tolerance for others, and uh, we learn that his affections grow with time and have nothing to do with the aptness of his friends. Mm. That's the kind of friend that Jekyll has. But it seems really clear that Jekyll doesn't know that. Here he is tormented and obsessed with this idea of essentially protecting himself from Utterson's gaze, right? What he's trying to do is avoid being openly human in front of anyone. He would rather be uh, well-liked by his friends. He'd rather be the talkative host. He'd rather be the brilliant doctor. He'd rather be any list of things other than what he is, which is a being struggling with sin like everybody else. Um, And, and, you know, I think, don't you think also the kids maybe do this in order to remove it from um, relevance to them in some way? I think that is what's happening. I don't think we can say they do it on purpose. I'm not sure they're... um, I'm not sure they've grown as readers enough yet to be willingly choosing a misreading. Okay, okay. So maybe that's a misspeaking. Maybe not willingly, but that does it does have the effect of placing mm-hmm. it outside the boundaries of anything that they'd have to look at in themselves. Right? Well, I think you're right. Because think of the way that this story gets characterized um, by genre in culture. We put 
Jekyll and Hyde in the same category as Monster with Frankenstein. Oh, with, all the time. Um, uh, Dracula mm-hmm. with with those series of monster stories. And so our immediate reaction to this is to push it away from us and make it the monster, make it the other. It's a story about right. the other, yeah. Yep. It's a story about the other. Hmm. But that's not what Stevens, Stevenson doesn't allow us to do that. And I think if we're willing to submit to the story and read well, what we see is a much different interpretation. Um, I want to read you a, a little passage I think is kind of the the interpretive hinge that the whole story swings on. It's from the incident at the window, which is about three quarters of the way through the story before the, the big reveal. And at this point, it's useful to note for our readers and listeners, Utterson and his friend Enfield don't have any idea that Jekyll and Hyde are the same person. Right, yeah. right. They don't, they don't know that. Um, and then furthermore, down the line a ways, they discover it. And so what's happening in the scene I'm about to read you is not a revealing to them of the fact that Jekyll and Hyde are the same person. Okay. It's something else. Okay. So listen to this. So they've been walking along the street and they walk by Jekyll's house and they look up and he is looking out of the window. And so Enfield and Utterson are having a little small talk sort of conversation with him. And um, as they look up into the window, he's looking out and suddenly he slams the window shut. And this is what Stevenson tells us about Jekyll's face in that moment. The words were hardly uttered before the smile was struck out of his face and succeeded by an expression of such abject terror and despair as froze the very blood of the two gentlemen below. They saw it for but a glimpse, for the window was instantly thrust down, but that glimpse had been sufficient, and they turned and left the court without a word. In silence, too, they traversed the by-street And it was not until they'd come into a neighboring thoroughfare, where even upon a Sunday, there were still some stirrings of life, that Mr. Utterson at last turned and looked at his companion. They were both pale, and there was an answering horror in their eyes. God forgive us. God forgive us, said Mr. Utterson. Mm -hmm. Interesting that you remind us, they don't know what they're looking at. They Mm -hmm. They haven't drawn any conclusions at all. And so the question leaps to my mind, why say, God forgive us? Well, I, th- I mean, I think, I think the, the reading bears itself out here really beautifully, because if we accept that they don't, they're not seeing Jekyll change into Hyde, mm-hmm. otherwise they would know the answer before the story was over. What they're seeing here is Jekyll um, utterly helpless in the knowledge that he has been abandoned to his evil twin. His, his sin has overtaken him utterly. And, and he can maybe feel the transition coming. He can feel Hyde upon him. And he slams the window shut before the moment of change so that his friends won't see it happen to him. Right. And so they're looking at that moment right before he falls into the depths of his despair. And so the, their response is incredible mm. because he doesn't say, God, forgive him. Right. Doesn't say, God, save him. Right. It's not a prayer for Jekyll. Uh. It's a prayer for Jekyll and themselves and everyone. Oh, wow. Right? It's God forgive us. The answering horror line is really important. And Stevenson's a total master, right? There was an answering horror in their own eyes. God forgive us. So whatever it is that Jekyll is struggling through, Stevenson seems to be at great pains to communicate to the reader that you, reader, are also struggling through it. And that the proper way to read this story is for an answering horror to be in your eyes as well. Mm-hmm. And for you to join Utterson and Enfield in praying for, for Jekyll and for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think wow. that's true. I think that he suggests um, with his story that 
the major problem that caused the downfall of Dr. Jekyll was his suspicion that he could divide the two natures, his um, unwillingness to accept that um, that there was that darker side of him. There was a sense of that's not me, right? Mm-hmm. There are these two parts of me, and that worst part isn't really me. If I could separate the two, then I could be good. And mm-hmm. that desire to be good, I think, is really what what more motivated him. He wanted to separate those two natures so that he could be good. And um, that goodness wasn't possible. He didn't know the strength of the depravity. And he wouldn't own it in that sense. And he sort of suggests the necessity of acknowledging the sinful part of ourselves and the need for curbing that sinful part, both through uh, see, community I don't, and... I don't agree with that, actually. And I don't mean to jump down your throat on it. But I, all of that... <laughs> But I will. Nodding and smiling. But no, it's not that it's the. And and I'm not going to say that Stevenson believes you should give vent to all your evil desires. I just don't think that's the conversation he's having. I think the conversation he's having is about how one interacts in a community when it comes to the topic of goodness and evil. Because the the thrust of the piece seems to be Jekyll turns inward. He shuts the window. Yeah, he shuts the window. He turns inward to his own mind to his own scientific accomplishments, to his own evaluation of good and evil, to his own judgments about himself and what would be better for him in his life to save him. And that way, no salvation lies. Who's to say what would have happened if he had turned outward instead and turned to his friends whom he claimed to love, who were going to respond with God forgive us as we the readers get to know. And and who who provide the context of this story too. Exactly. Well, exactly. Yes. In other words, Stevenson is saying, you exist in a community. You don't have a choice about that. And if you turn toward yourself instead of turning outward towards your people, you're in deep trouble, which is less a curbing of evil and more of a, more a, um, an encouragement to openness, I think. Well, and, and in addition, curbing evil, I think the, the observations he's making about the nature of man are really interesting too, because the result of the experiment, as we were hinting at before, it's not successful. He does succeed in separating out a completely evil person, a completely evil nature from himself. But Jekyll is not completely good. He's left with, he's still himself. He still Mm -hmm. feels those Hyde-like impulses in his own person. And so there is no completely good and completely evil. There's, um, there's a mixture and then there's completely evil. Yeah. (laughs) It is not in the human nature to be angelic. Mm -hmm. We know this because he does um, make provision for the flesh after that first experience that goes so, so poorly um, he doesn't throw away the clothes of his second half, mm-hmm. but he keeps right. them, right? As he keeps the little apartment in Soho, he makes provision for the flesh. Yeah, I Even think you're right about that. Even though he vows to throw off Hyde forever, he doesn't really intend to. And I think that substantiates what Emily's suggesting. Well, yeah, he, you're right. He goes through, at the end, there's several times that he tries to convert right Mm -hmm. he's always trying to convert himself away from Hyde and become Jekyll and he's always eschewing Hyde Uh, he tries this I think three times and it goes poorly each time as hard as he tries to resolve to leave Hyde behind it gets harder and harder to do so and it seems so clear that that is the evil Stevenson is interested in talking about 
is what again? To, the impulse through the impulse to through your own diligence and resolution save yourself from evil. That's what that's what sinks Jekyll. I don't think it's Jekyll's human nature that sinks Jekyll, although that's currently the, that's obviously the topic of the story. But Utterson shares Jekyll's nature and right. repents of it in that scene. Jekyll is not um, more evil than the guy standing next to him. He has just decided that the topic of evil and how it's to be handled is his decision. And he has spent his life obsessing over the difference between those two and trying like mad to find a way to be good. So, so you suggest that in that moment at the window, when Utterson and Enfield cry, God forgive us, they are foils for Jekyll behind the, the closed shutter that he has turned to the left, they have turned to the right. And that, yes. in a sense, is the is the a, a climactic moment of the story, where, where Stevenson drives his point home, that in the community, down in the street, there is safety. And in the yeah. solitary cabinet behind the window, there is destruction. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, in and... Call me, tell me I'm reading too much into it, but I don't think I am. That whole thing happens on a Sunday afternoon. I mean, it, <laughs> I didn't it's notice the, that. It's the closest to a church moment we get in the whole story. Mm-hmm. It's the closest to a religious moment we get to the in the whole story. I mean, essentially what Stevenson said is, if God cares about this topic, this is how he wants us to handle it. <laughs> well, and <laughs> even his name, his name Hyde, you know, which yeah. implies the hiding that he does, that that man does. Um, of his sinful self, you know, he wants to sin in private in disguise yeah, and not right. share that with the world that this, this portion of him exists. And he, he says on page 85 in my text that he preferred the elderly and discontented doctor surrounded by friends and cherishing honest hopes and bade a resolute farewell to the liberty, the comparative youth, the light step, leaping impulses and secret pleasures that he enjoyed in the disguise of Hyde. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but then he, like I said, he makes provision for his flesh. But there's, there is the statement there of his preference, which I mm-hmm. think does away with the student's idea that he just wanted to enjoy all those horrible things. Right. I think he, he preferred the one to the other, but he mm-hmm. made provision for the other. And right. in the end, the other comes roaring out. He doesn't really, like I said, he, I think over and over again, um, I think Stevenson says over and over again that we we underestimate the sin in, well, in our hearts. Well, maybe uh, given what Ian and Emily are suggesting, we underestimate the sin in our hearts not only to go and murder poor Mr. Carew, but also to try and make ourselves good mm-hmm. by our own chemical machinations or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. By by mixing powders, so to speak. Yeah, not, not just that we underestimate it, but that we misidentify it in a lot of ways that, mm. that what maybe we consider if my students are any indication, what we consider to be the ultimate and best impulse, which is the impulse to reform one's bad behavior is in and of itself, original sin period. Or at least, or at least, uh, uh, touched by it, at least disfigured by it. Well, to use a Heidian metaphor. Even his ability to acknowledge and name that sin as what it is, is, is um, defective because he says um, when he says he finally gives in and he takes the the drought the draft again or the draft drought what do you say draft the draft draft yeah. when he drinks that medicine again he he says um, <laughs> had a girl my devil had long been caged he came out roaring 
I was conscious, even when I took the the draft, of a more unbridled, a more furious propensity to ill. It must have been this, I suppose, that stirred in my soul, that tempest of impatience with which I listened to the civilities of my unhappy victim. And then he later um, kind of um, dismisses what he did in that state. He says... um, Let's see. I declared at least before God, no man morally sane could have been guilty of that crime upon so pitiful a provocation, and that I struck in no more reasonable spirit than that in which a sick child may break a plaything. Mm-hmm. I had voluntarily stripped myself, though, of all those balancing instincts by which even the worst of us continues to walk with some degree of steadiness among temptations, and in my case, to be tempted, however slightly was to fall. So he he acknowledges the fact that somehow the one was playing policeman over the other. Right, and he had taken the policeman away voluntarily, but that mm-hmm. when he was working as Hyde, um, he's to be excused because he was no more than an ignorant child, mm-hmm. just acting like an ignorant child. So there was no moral, yeah. um, no moral ill done there. Really, he's to be excused because he didn't know right from wrong. Hmm. Because there was no. There was no choice involved. Well, there was no law involved because the part of him that was... Um, that acknowledges the yes, law in any way, yeah. Yeah, that he laid that down and that that was his true crime to, mm. to lay aside mm-hmm. that person. He does that again in the conclusion when he, he claims that he, he starts talking about Hyde as in the third person, as an individual that is not himself, that is affecting... Jekyll. He, mm-hmm. he refuses to take responsibility for the actions of Hyde. Yeah, there's a dissociation. He's, he's determined to acknowledge, to have everyone acknowledge that they're two different people that just mm-hmm. happen to live inside of him. He's, he doesn't acknowledge a unity of identity, you know? Right. Oh, the whole thing is a question of identity. And it mm-hmm. seems really clear that Jekyll's whole goal is to craft one for himself. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting too, that uh, to come back to the idea of community that you stressed a minute ago and relate it to this idea of identity. I have always thought that the beginning of this story is a little strange in the time that Stevenson gives to describing Utterson, who is frankly, by all appearances, kind of a minor character in the story. He's a story frame, it looks like. And this is, Stevenson spends way too long developing a story frame, it seems here. Mm-hmm. Describing Utterson paragraphs at a time and his, his good nature and in particular his capacity for friendship. That's what Utterson, that's what we get at the beginning, describing Utterson and Enfield and the walks that they take together and the community that they create. That is the story frame that Stevenson gives us. And I never really thought about it until today that it's that's thematically integral to... Mm-hmm what Stevenson is trying to say about Jekyll. I wonder too, if um, the God forgive us has something to do, not only with acknowledging that portion of their own nature that they see reflected in their friend's face, but also in their, their, they're kind of abiding by social niceties in a sense, because they see that something horrible is happening with their friend, but they're very polite about it. They don't really press themselves on him utterly. And in the conversations where some attempts are made, um, Jekyll says, for example, on page 48, you must suffer me to go my own dark way. I've brought on myself a punishment and a danger that I cannot name, right? Um, Later he says, if I am the chief of sinners, I am the chief of sufferers. Also respect my silence. Respect my silence. There's this, Leave me alone. Yeah, this, um, this appeal that their friend makes to them to respect his silence, to leave him alone. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if um, 
if that is not a moral failing on their part because mm. of their desire in some way to distance themselves from any kind of moral evil also. Yeah, I just had never really considered how central the idea of, of community and friendship and multiple people being involved together, living together and working together, how central that is thematically to this story. Because I, as I gave away here at the beginning of the hour, um, uh, adopt the, easily adopt just the, the quick binary um, interpretation of this story. This is a story about good Jekyll versus bad Hyde. And we readers are to choose one over the other. And it's got a weird story frame with Utterson, who's kind of a cold fish. <laughs> but right. But the, the interpretation that you're giving here is way more coherent and integrated that, that Jekyll, the loner, Jekyll, the controller of his own destiny, Jekyll, the, the excuser of his, of his pharisaical urges is mm-hmm. the, uh, is the problem. And Enfield and Utterson and Lanyon who provide his community are the, are the solution that he eventually forsakes and denies. But then Love has it. to return to. I mean, we've got the scene with Lanyon that basically um, destroys Lanyon. What is it about seeing Hyde and acknowledging that this this is a part of his friend Jekyll, that those two natures are bound together? When he is confronted with um, Jekyll turned Hyde or Hyde turned Jekyll or however you he want to say that. He loses his mind and he dies. He loses his mind and dies. Why? Yeah, I want to hear that. Why is it that he loses his mind and dies? Isn't it because he... Um, doesn't want any more than the rest of us do to acknowledge that that kind of depravity lives inside an otherwise very good man, because then he would have to to confront the sin in his own heart. So is it just that his his uh, his psyche can't take the suggestion? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, he declares that he's had a shock from which he shall never recover. He says. I sometimes think if we knew all, we should be glad to get away. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I definitely think that the, that that Stevenson is concerned that we understand that evil in the human heart um, is not a minor ailment. No, it's a really, really, that a terminal really, really bad. <laughs> and and the whole the whole thing, um, the whole idea of community that I think he's trying to put across is only weighty and powerful if the evil that it's confronting is weighty and powerful. Hmm. And so, yeah, it's a terminal illness and everybody exposed to it's going to die. And still, I think the, the only solution that he offers us is the God forgive us line. Hmm. Yeah. And don't you think that, um, that Jekyll is not the only one who fails in the story then that also Utterson and Lanyon fail in the very way that I was starting to indicate before they fail to come together and be the community that Jekyll needs in order to overcome the circumstances. They respect his silence hmm. and, and they do it in the interest of being socially acceptable hmm. in a lot of ways. I mean, think about the letter that's waiting to be read and, and that is marked not to be read until the death or disappearance of Dr. Jekyll. Right. And he, what does he do? He, yeah. he refrains from reading it because of his professional and personal integrity. Yeah, it, that is kind of funny. If you can imagine someone handing you that letter, don't read this until so-and-so disappears. Oh, right. I'd be reading it right now. Yeah, I mean, he's a lawyer. Or, it's a professional integrity versus, uh, well, I guess it brings brings up questions of loyalty. What is loyalty? Yeah. And what is honor? Uh, good and, question. Um, what is integrity, right? Well, yeah. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think it absolutely brings those things up. Um, the other, and I've, I'm interested to read if anybody knows of an article that that writes about the story in this way. I really want to read it because it just seems obvious to me. Someone has to have written about this story as a meditation on addiction of some kind. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Think. I'm sure. I mean the 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 fact that Hyde is an absolute fiend. Um, I mean, it makes me wonder if Stevenson himself had any struggles with addiction of any kind mm-hmm. because it it's a, it seems to be such a profound picture or image of of the way that someone struggling with an addiction would would be forced to see himself and see the world and yeah the way that. he the way Jekyll speaks of Hyde and of him of himself under Hyde's influence sounds like um, you know it sounds like it comes from that part of the human experience for sure yeah like a, like an alcoholic or in or that climactic like. moment um, when the last is the the chapter entitled the last night I think when they say that the person behind the door, they don't know who it is exactly. Um, he's crying and he's been crying for a week for a medicine he can't obtain. Mm. You know, it, it creates such a sympathetic, um, tone for the character's plight. Right. That's the ultimate thing that I, that, that I think is, um, that I aim to change in my students when we talk about this book is, Unless you see this reading, you don't have any compassion on Jekyll, really. No, you um, don't. And and I think that this this section where Poole, the servant, is explaining um, oh. what he looked like when he saw him, mm-hmm. how he had he seemed to have a mask upon his face. He would run away from him. He was in some way dwarfed. All of these, all of these, just evoke so much pity for the torment mm-hmm. that the man is experiencing from this this mental terror and physical domination. Mm-hmm. What kind of, if, if we can just go so, so academic here, what kind of uh, assignment do you give the students in like a writing assignment or what, what sort of prompt do you give them to encourage the kind of careful reading that you, the kind of, you know, deeper level reading that you want, as opposed to this kind of offhanded take the easy route, see the dualism there and say, A, bad, B, good, pick B. What kind of qu- leading question do you ask just out of curiosity? Well, it, I mean, the basic center for lit one, really, it, it comes down to what Jekyll wants. Mm. What is the goal of his experiment? And mm. is he successful at that? Mm. And they're going to say, I, I mean, we've been doing this for a couple of years now. And what they're going to say is that he wanted to indulge in his evil. And so you have to take him back to the text and say, show me, mm-hmm. <laughs> show me where mm-hmm. because there's more to it than that. Yeah. So the, 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 the stated desire of the protagonist is a great place to start. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Cause yeah, I've read if that doesn't, if that doesn't work, you could combine that question with something on with something about um, identifying the climax of the story too, because mm-hmm. there, are, there are some different moments that could maybe vie for that title, but none of them are as intimately connected to the theme as the one I was talking about earlier. This question isn't exactly uh, limited to Jekyll and Hyde. In fact, it's exactly not limited, but um, you guys are suggesting that a moralistic reading of this novel uh, isn't really the best one and doesn't really jive best with all of the facts presented by the text. But Stevenson certainly seems to be moralistic in some of his other stories, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think of um, The Black Arrow, for example, or, or Kidnapped, or uh, you know, even Treasure Island has got a, 
a pretty heavy moral element to it. It could be said that all three of those other well-known Stevenson novels are didactic even on the moral side. Does that, in your view, does that make Jekyll and Hyde an outlier? Or am I, along with my junior high friends, misreading those other books too? Emily, you want to go first? Well, the Black Arrow, yes, he is definitely pushing an agenda in the Black Arrow, but it's one of forgiveness Hmm. in the end. And yes, he's a little more pushy with his theme in that one, but I do think it jives with the same things that he's saying in Jekyll and Hyde. Hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, isn't he painting Long John Silver fairly sympathetically by the end in Treasure Island? Uh, well, he's, uh, yeah. I mean, you, you sympathize with him. You, you identify with him, I suppose. He's definitely the bad guy and he's, 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 he's sure. pretty evil, but, uh, He's strangely attractive. But he is strangely attractive, though. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. That's true. That's I true. wonder. I wonder if the way to put it is that um, is that a good is that a work of literature as opposed to a fable is unique in that it contains both moral reflection and thematic content, and that those are two different things, mm-hmm. and that a good reader is capable of separating the one from the other always. Mm-hmm. And so, in Treasure Island, there is both a moral and a theme mm-hmm. and in kidnapped there is both a moral and a theme and so on and so forth. And that um, the project of educating a young reader is getting them to acknowledge a step one, I, a moral creature in a, in a world in which grace has been interposed for me, am going to have to rid myself of my addiction to morality at some point. And B a great tool in that regard is um, reading great works of literature sure. because the authors that are writing the great works have done that already and are talking about both things simultaneously. Interesting. And nine times out of 10, I think if you're willing to um, take a step beyond that moral reading that you come to first instinctively because the law is written on your heart, mm-hmm. um, you're going to find some element of grace in the story because that's also every bit as powerful an element of the world we live in. Hmm. Well, I think, uh, I think probably my own reading of Stevenson will take on a new dimension, thinking about it that way. And maybe Stevenson doesn't get enough credit uh, if, if the kind of reading he gets is, is uh, as moralistic as we think it might be. I certainly think is the, that Jekyll and Hyde um, appears more compelling with this, with this reading of it. And I, I'm, actually interested to go back and look at treasure Island again and see if the same can be said. Interesting. I think there's, there's a little bit more to the black arrow than meets the eye too. It is, um, it's long, it's long. (laughs) Uh, but I do think like Emily was saying, it's a lot about forgiveness and, um, and a lot about, uh, coming into adulthood and what that actually means. And let's put it this way. The main character doesn't get to ultimately be the arbiter of, of all death and destruction and just and justice at the end. Yeah. Um, so that's, I mean, that's so far so similar to the real world. Right. Right. Wow. Thank you guys. Great conversation. That was, uh, that was eye opening, uh, eye opening for your dear old dad, believe it or not. That was awesome. Uh, any final comments, my love? No, I think that's great. I, I love, um, Emily's original comment about how this was a failed experiment. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Not just because he died. Right. Not just because he died. Yeah. It failed in every way. It was a failed experiment. So, you know, morality tale for sure. Mm-hmm. But I think it goes much deeper than that. It's, I think this is actually a work of, um, uh, an artistic work of theology. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's an interesting take on it. Well, we will leave you uh, listeners to uh, agree or disagree with that, to conclude on your own from this discussion. What you think about uh, Jekyll and Hyde, maybe leave us some comments in various places if you have a mind to and continue a discussion about it. Meanwhile, we are going to uh, begin a new book in the Radio Read Along series, which is colloquially known as... Yes? Off to Neverland! (laughs) (laughs) She sang on the air. That was awesome. It's Peter Pan. <laughs> oh, is that what we're doing next? J.M. Barry's Peter Pan, read by Megan Andrews, the uh, she of the sweet dulcet pipes, who will take us through uh, Barry's classic, and we will discuss it betimes as it goes along, and uh, be back again with you shortly. Um, do, do we know the schedule of it, Emily? How, how often we're going to discuss it in, in and amongst the episodes? That is a good question. This one is longer, so we might want to do something a little bit more like Great Expectations. Like every maybe, every maybe five episodes or so? Every five, yeah. Okay. Well, we will make decisions on that, and you'll see it in the uh, in the schedule for Radio Read Along, which you can, you can find it on, on our website at centerforlit.com. And we also encourage you to explore the Pelican Society, if you get a minute, pelicansociety.com where we have assembled resources for teachers, readers, parents, and people of all stripes. And we'd be happy to welcome you in to our various resource libraries. Hey, this has been fun, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Until we meet again, happy reading. Happy Happy reading. reading. Radio Read Along is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find more classic stories in this series or explore our other podcasts on the web at centerforlit.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.